Oh, Heavenly Father, may these words that we just sang not just be words, nor this Christ the King Sunday, the last Sunday in Pentecost, just be another in the year, but Lord, may we truly see you as our Savior, as our King, as our Judge, and respond in joy. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm coming to know the canticles, but I don't quite know them by heart yet. So I invite you to open with me to today's canticle, which is in the Book of Common Prayer begins on page 84. We said it together earlier. The cantate domino. Sing to the Lord. Sing to the Master. Literally. Cantate domino. Leah and I are uh, just finished reading a biography of uh, Queen Elizabeth II, um, which was very interesting. We started reading it as the, the um, TV show The Crown came out. And how many of you are watching that or have? Some good Anglophiles in here. Yeah. The Crown came out, and uh, we're learning all about um, Queen Elizabeth. One of the things that's recurrent and striking, however, is that her monarchy is not an absolute monarchy, Right? In fact, one of the things that came out through the biography, even more than the series, is that the monarchy of Great Britain is very restricted. In fact, you come to the end of some of the episodes thinking to yourself, well, they have these palaces, they have this great wealth, but who would want that job, right? To be restricted from expressing their opinions, to have to watch and know that every move they make could be the end of the monarchy, right? Who would want that job? I think oftentimes we don't realize that. Um, the monarchy of God is not like that, right? Praise God. The monarchy of God is not like that, not restricted in any way. And of course, as we're going to see in today's canticle, that's a good thing because the monarchy of God is infinitely just. He rules with equity, we're told, at the end of this canticle. But if we're going through this canticle together, which is also um, Psalm 98, I want you to notice three things with me. That you can break this up into three different parts. First of all, the canticle gives glory to God and in fact bids us sing to God as our Savior, verses 1 through 4, as our King, verses 5 through 7, and as our Judge, verses 8 through 10. So there's three parts to the canticle. Singing to God as our Savior, our King, and our Judge. Sing to the Lord a new song, we're told. For He has done marvelous things. With his own hand, with his holy arm, he has won for himself the victory, is the first line there. 
Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. Well, first of all, just a quick review. Who is the Lord? Whenever you see the word Lord in the Psalter and it's all caps, do you see that there? Whenever you see that, that means Yahweh. That means who is the Lord, the God of Israel, right? Yahweh is the name. Sometimes it's translated Jehovah, although that's outdated. Um, and that was a guess. That's a long story. It was a guess at basically Hebrew. Hebrew has no vowels, and so there was a guess as to how to pronounce it, and that was one of the guesses, but uh, we know now that it was way off. Um, sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. Whenever you see that, that's the God of Israel, specifically this God, the God of the Hebrews, and the God of the Christians. What are these things that are marvelous being referenced here for the Hebrews, for the house of Israel? What are these things? Now, we want to jump immediately as people of the new covenant to, of course, Jesus. And that's not a wrong interpretation. That's a right interpretation. But that's not the original interpretation of what's going on here. You see, oftentimes with prophecies in the Old Testament, there's actually echoes that go throughout the covenant. And so what is said by the prophet will be fulfilled in his lifetime and then is fulfilled even more in Christ and then looks ahead to the end of time. And this is one of those prophecies where we see that on display, right? So he has done marvelous things. What's being talked about? Well, scholars guess at it because the psalm was written after a great victory for God's people, a great military victory, right? And so some scholars think that perhaps this was a defeat of the Babylonians or occurs after the exile. Um, others think that this is talking about Egypt, right? The uh, Syriac text actually lists Egypt and says, it reads this way, Sing unto the Lord a new song, for he has won the victory over Egypt. Now, that's interesting. Certainly not definitive. But as we look at this, we see that God has won a victory and that he will one then and yet there's still part of it where his victory is not entirely complete because his rule isn't entirely put into place yet. So he's the savior, he's the king and the victor, and yet He's not completely, his, his rule hasn't been completely acknowledged. That's how we're looking at this. So the author of the psalm knows that part of this has been fulfilled as he writes this, but not all of it's been fulfilled. The Savior has come and won the victory. That's what's being talked about here. Now, when you hear the word Savior, you, again, automatically think Jesus Christ. Saving me from my sins. But remember, the word Savior here is in the sense of a military Savior. Okay? Someone that's come about, a great general, a great leader. The idea is that God has saved his people from slavery from an enemy. Okay? In the original context. So, let's just take Egypt, because I think Egypt makes sense given some of the rest of the subject of the Psalms, as the enemy. 
The Savior has come and won the victory. And this victory that's talked about in this psalm is, as I've said, an earthly victory. The psalmist might be reflecting back on Exodus chapter 15, verse 6, for example, which reads this way. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. That's Exodus chapter 15, starting at verse 6, and, or starting at verse um, 4 and ending with verse 6. So throughout the book of Exodus, God makes it clear that the Egyptians and the rest of the world are to be known, to be made aware that he is God. His mighty deeds are proof of his identity as God and his uniqueness. So let's move on to the next part of the canticle here. The Lord has declared his salvation. His righteousness he has openly shown in the sight of the nations. Do you see how that's linking together? That they might know that I am God. And here in the canticle we see his salvation has been openly shown before the nations. The salvation of the Hebrew people. But what's fascinating is the church has always seen God's salvation of the Israelites in the Red Sea as a foreshadowing of holy baptism. St. Paul actually alludes to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 1 and 2. Baptism in the Red Sea, they were baptized into Moses, says St. Paul, freed Israel, bringing them from slavery into the promised land, right? And you all know that story, the story of Exodus. When God's people return from exile in Babylon, therefore, they see a consistency in God's salvation, just as he saved them from Egypt, so now he saves them from their enemies in Babylon. The psalmist here is prophesying, and perhaps he doesn't even know it. For just as some, in some of the canticles, the word here is translated salvation... So I've told you in some of the other canticles, what is that actual word in Hebrew? Do you remember? Pop quiz. What is the word for salvation in Hebrew that occurs often in these psalms? Yeshua. Yes, Yeshua, which is the Hebraic Jesus. So here again, we see the psalmist prophesying a bigger salvation. In fact, he's prophesying not just an earthly salvation, but an eternal salvation. And of course, on our side of the covenant, we know that is coming through Jesus. So there where it says, the Lord hath declared his salvation, his righteousness, he is openly shown in the sight of the nations. And then the next line, he has remembered his mercy and truth towards the house of Israel, and all the ends of the world have seen the salvation of our God. Everywhere you see salvation, the word is Yeshua. Yeshua in Hebrews. In Hebrew, rather. So do you see there's more going on than even the psalmist knows as he writes this? 
that he's talking about an earthly victory, but there is an eternal victory in mind. So this psalm looks forward to the Son of God, just as the Jeremiah reading that Brigitte read for us this morning looks forward to the Son of God, who's a new kind of shepherd, a new kind of salvation, a new kind of person who rescues, right? Jeremiah 23, verse 4, that we read today. God promises, I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. A man who would embody deliverance and salvation himself. This is Jesus the Savior, the good shepherd who seeks his sheep. And so the canticle says, sing to this Savior. Sing to the Savior. But the canticle goes, goes on to say, sing to the King. Right? Because here the canticle shifts from God's people singing about Yahweh, the Lord saving them, and looking forward to Jesus the Savior, to what? All the lands. Look at the next verse. Show yourselves joyful unto the Lord, all you lands. Sing, rejoice, and give thanks. We'll stop there for the moment. Show yourself joyful in the Lord, all you lands. All people are to see the reality of Israel's God, the universal king, the king of everyone. He's not the Hebrew God only, or the Hebrew king only, He's the king of the whole earth. Everything that is, everything that will be, he reigns supreme for all people. And in this psalm, God's people are faithfully fulfilling what God has commissioned them to do way back in Exodus again. Back in Exodus at Mount Sinai, speaking through Moses, God tells them in chapter 19, verse 5 and 6, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. So what's God saying to them here back in Exodus? He's saying that all the world is his, that, that while he has a special relationship with them as his people, he is in fact the savior and the king of all people, and that will eventually come about. Isaiah picks up on this theme in Isaiah 42, verse 6, where he writes, I am the Lord, and of course he's writing the Lord's words here, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind. That's Isaiah 42, verse 6. So the people of Israel were supposed to declare the saving the saving. Saviorness, if you will, the salvation of God, the kingship of God, and the eternal kingdom of God. And here, in this psalm, Psalm 98, this canticle, they're doing it. They're doing it. It's a joyful thing. So oftentimes we look in the Old Testament, we see the Hebrew of God, fall, people of God falling on their faces, right? Uh, not in worship, but, but in failure to keep their, their covenant, right? But here... They are proclaiming God for the nations. In fact, they're calling one another to do it in this canticle. 
Notice what's going on. Why is this the king, about the kingship of God? Look at the next verse. How are they to call others, all the lands to rejoice? We get specifics. Praise the Lord with the harp. Sing with the harp a psalm of thanksgiving. With trumpets also and horns. Oh, show yourselves joyful before the Lord, the King. Why these instruments particularly? These are actually instruments that are used in the coronations in ancient times. So if we look back, for example, at King Solomon, David's son being enthroned, here's what was going on. 1 Kings verse, chapter 1, verse 38. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and made Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gion. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet. And all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And the people went up after him, playing on pipes, rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. That is celebration, isn't it? That the earth be split by their noise. They're so jubilant in their king. God's chosen people here are proclaiming the good news of their king, which is good news for everybody else, too. In today's gospel, we read about the two thieves crucified on either side of Jesus. But did you ever think that the one was not just being cruel with his mockery, but that there was more, of his, more to his point? Think about King Jesus being crucified on the cross next to these two thieves who maybe had Jewish background, likely, and the one thief says, what? If you're really the Son of God, why not come down from here? Free us both, right? Now, there is some cruelty there, but what else is there? This thief is saying, this is not how it's supposed to be. If you're the king, what are you doing nailed up on this cross with us? Right? It's a logical question. But what that thief fails to see is what the other crucified man does see. Right? Because he looks at the same Jesus and says what? Jesus, and these words are really important. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The second thief sees the eternal application of this canticle. That the kingdom of this world is not yet the kingdom of our God. Right? Jesus has won the victory, and yet his rule, he is king, and yet his rule is incomplete as of yet. So interestingly does the psalmist see this in the last verses of this canticle, or this psalm. Look what he writes. Let the sea make a noise and all that is in it, the round world and those that dwell therein. Let the rivers clap their hands and let the hills be joyful together before the Lord, for he has come to judge the earth. 
With righteousness shall he judge the world and the peoples with equity. Do you see? It's, it's harder in the English to see. But do you see how he's looking forward to these things that are to come? This king will come to judge the earth. With righteousness will, shall he judge the world and the peoples with equity. Therefore, the rivers are to clap their hands. All of creation is going to rejoice when the king of glory finally comes to institute his full rule. Revelation talks about this as the new heavens and the new earth. Right? We live in this bizarre middle section where Jesus has won the victory. He is the king. He is the savior. And yet his right rule has not been consummated. It's not complete yet. Right? And therefore, we still deal with sin. We still deal with wars. We still deal with, with, with rotten things that human beings do to one another. Right? We still are not obedient unto the king. And yet, the good news, as we enter into Advent, we pick up this theme, the good news is that that king, who we know to be Jesus Christ, is coming again. And we'll set all of that right. That's the promise of this canticle here. Notice, with righteousness shall he judge the world and the peoples with equity. He will be a just judge that sees all things and takes everything into account. And he will judge the people with equity, with fair-handedness is the best way to translate that, with fair-handedness. It lies yet in the future for the psalmist. It lies yet in the future for us. And yet, we can be confident that Christ is the Savior and is the King. As scholar John Stott points out in his commentary on this, he says, He, that is Jesus, is already King, but the earth does not yet acknowledge His rule. Only when God's rule is established will the peoples and nature itself be subdued and righteously governed. Only then will, will we be subdued, which will be a good submission, and righteously governed. Think about that. You know, we think about being subdued as not a good thing, right? But if what we're doing is not in line, alignment with God, is it a good thing for God to subdue us to his will? If what we're doing is actually bad for us, is it good for God to change things about us by subduing us in accordance with his will? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And so here at the end of the canticle, we're given that assurance. That's what we celebrate today. The Lord is king. The Lord is savior. The Lord will come and be judge. His monarchy is not at all limited. He's not just a figurehead. He will come one day and his right rule will be established. And as we pray, may his kingdom come. May his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.